Hello, hello, hello. You're listening to Better Ideas, a weekly podcast from the Better Homes and Gardens TV gang, hosted by me, architect Pete Calhoun. Now, each week, we'll be bringing you the latest tips for creating a better home inside and out. I'll be chatting with experts, enthusiasts, and of course, the Better Homes and Gardens TV gang, right here on Better Ideas. This week, we're talking wine, cooking with it, storing it, and also drinking it. Ed Hormaji starts the conversation with some tips on saving money on your beef bourguignon. Let's face it, it's a high price point wine, and if your budget doesn't run to that, what I'd say is go and buy a cheap and cheerful Merlot. Then my old mate and architect wine importer Paul Jones brings with him from Bebo Wine Bar head sommelier Luella Matthews. Now she lets slip on some personal wine storing techniques. I must say, Luella, you know, I don't know how you fit 4,000 bottles under the sink in, 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 in your bathroom, but uh, you're very good at that. This is Better Ideas. If you'd like to get in contact with us with some ideas, send us an email. It's podcasts, with an S, at 7.com.au. Now let's get started talking wine. Last week we were talking about water. This week we're talking about Wine. It's a biblical transformation in a sense. And who better to talk about it than Ed Hamaji from Better Homes and Gardens. Fast, Ed, the weather's getting cooler. I've noticed that. I'm thinking about something warm to eat, beef burgundy. But oh, mate, good, good yeah, idea. Yeah, yes. You got a recipe to play with? I. That's why you're here, mate. Now I need a wine, don't I? Well, you do indeed. And look, one of the things is when you when you go and cast your net wide on the grand old internet looking for a Boeuf Bourguignon recipe, you're going to find that pretty much everyone recommends a different wine. This is a problem because how do you work out which one is accurate? Well, what I would say to you is that thankfully we live in a democracy and democracy gives everybody the right to be wrong and most people are. Uh, <laughs> when you're in the same room as Ed, I understand this conversation. <laughs> the point is it absolutely makes an enormous difference difference what kind of wine you use when you're cooking, particularly for slow cooking. Let's start with a, a very basic observation. It's called beef burgundy, mm. not beef barossa. Yes. Uh, and the wines of burgundy and the wines of the barossa are distinctly different. Now, here in Australia, we have a particular fascination with those enormous, fruity, high alcohol, highly tannic Shirazes and Cabernets and Grenaches. Now, yeah, they're delicious, and so is the second bottle. However, <laughs> it is not what a burgundy is. Burgundy is classically a style of wine made from Pinot Noir. In France. In France, yeah. yeah. Now, here in Australia, we produce great Pinot Noir as well at a slightly higher price point than they do in France, but it's because there's less of it. Now, it's not, I'm not saying they only grow Pinot Noir in Burgundy. There's good Carignan and Grenache and some other varietals as well, but it's what they're known for. Mm. And what makes a Pinot Noir unique as compared to something like a Shiraz or a Cabernet is it's refined and elegant and light. I mean, if you hold them up to the light, your Shiraz is that deep, rich, almost thick-looking red, purpley colour. Yeah? Mm. You hold a Pinot Noir up, it's almost a little bit transparent. Mm -hmm. It is a physically lighter wine. So when you're cooking with wine, there's three bits in the wine you need to know about. Now, you've heard of tannin? Yes. Okay, describe yes. what tannin does when you well, drink it's a t it. It's one of those tastes on the front of your, on front of your tongue, isn't it? Something something you, people describe wine in now. I'm not a, a sommelier, but it's one of those things that if you, you taste one wine from the other, people talk about the tannin or that taste you get on, left on your tongue. Left on the tongue, good way to put it, because what it is, it's what we call astringency. Now, tannin can be found in a whole bunch of places, but they're all mostly uh, plants. It's found in the bark and the seeds and the skin of the grape. And it's also found in timber. And traditionally, tannin is used to turn skins into leather because it's got a curative effect. So that, that effect you're feeling on your tongue mm. 
And that's what it does to leather to make it last, mm-hmm. right? The thing about tannin, tannin's very bitter and very grippy. So if you start off with a cup of wine and it's got, it's a fairly grippy wine, like a, a Shiraz with a lot of tannin, as you cook that down, you might evaporate out both water and alcohol, but you're not evaporating out tannin. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to get more and more concentrated as it cooks down. That's why you want to have these lighter styles of wine. There are, however, a second choice if you need it. it look, Pinot Noir, let's face it, it's a high price point wine. And if your budget doesn't run to that, what I'd say is go and buy a cheap and cheerful Merlot. Right. Do you like Merlot? Well, I don't mind it, but how's it affecting I can't my, stand it. I think it's awful. Well, really? <laughs> Anything put in front of me generally, Ed, on a Friday. <laughs> you, do you know what? You, you know what I describe Merlot. People say like a wine's like a, love, a lovely hand crocheted blanket. Well, Merlot is the Snuggie, you know? It's yeah. like the, the polar fleece thing you wear in front of the television. It's a rubbish wine to drink by and large. However, um, because of the way it's made, it's generally low tannin to start with, and it generally doesn't stay in barrel for very long. Because remember, it's from the skins, from the seeds, from the stalks that go into the crush, but it's also from the barrels in which they're stored. So the less time in barrel, the less uh, amount of tannin you're going to get. And generally, Merlot is processed off fairly quickly. So if you need a good, cheap and cheerful, you can pick up a Merlot for five bucks, and it's great for cookery. So I would say if you want to do a high-end Boeuf Bourguignon, Mr. Calhoun, I'd yeah. say go with the Pinot. Yeah. But if you want to do something a little bit richer tasting and at a cheaper price point, Go for the Merlot. And when you're putting it into your, your recipe, any tips on that? Well, there's a couple of things. You'll notice often, uh, particularly if you ever watch a movie where they've got a French chef, that why are the pans always on fire in a movie? <laughs> Honestly, if anyone ever did that in my kitchen, they would get fired, oh, so to speak. Worst thing to do. The moment you burn anything in a pan, you create acrid smokes, which create a terrible aftertaste. All right? When you're evaporating out the alcohol, which is really important because alcohol is also quite bitter, generally speaking, the recipe might say you fry off your onions, your garlic, your celery, set that aside. You'll fry off the meat, set that aside, and then you'll pour the wine into the saucepan and let that boil for a while to get rid of the alcohol. That is a really important step. But I'm going to tell you two things. Number one, it never gets rid of all of the alcohol. That's impossible. It could. Well, yes and no. <laughs> no, uh, We'll okay. come to that in a minute. But the other thing is, doing that process of actually what we call evaporating out is going to give you a richer and smoother result. Setting fire to it is just going to make it taste a bit smoky, which you really don't want. Now, so I said that not all the alcohol evaporates. Why would this be important? Well, one of my best friends, he's from Pakistan. He's an observant Muslim. And when he comes around, I need to make sure that you know, his food needs to be halal. It cannot contain pork or shellfish or alcohol. And so there's a thing you need to know called azeotrope. It's a technical term, and basically it means you can't get rid of all the alcohol. If you take a cup of wine and you put it in a pot and you start simmering it away, essentially what will happen is that both water and alcohol are evaporating. There's a lot more water than there is alcohol. The alcohol evaporates a lot more slowly until eventually the water level is reducing the alcohol's reducing, eventually you will end up with equal amounts of alcohol and water. And from there, it will evaporate equally right down until the last drop. That point at which they join is called azeotrope. Okay. So you can never get rid of all of the alcohol. It's a myth. So you do need to be aware of that in certain situations. But listen, while we're on the booze and cooking thing, Mm. we shouldn't leave it just at wine, should we? No, not at all, man. If you've got something else to uh, (laughs) to, to, to pour out. (laughs) To pour out, I do indeed. (laughs) See, as a pastry chef by training, I am a mad fan of making homemade ice cream. And look, anytime, if you've ever tried making either sorbet, gelato, or ice cream at home, and you found a recipe with booze in it, and you tell me it doesn't set properly, I'm telling you there's a reason for it. Alcohol stops the formation of ice crystals. So actually, we use a little bit of booze in ice cream, if it's going to set too hard, to soften off the texture. But if you add too much, it'll just end up being like a slurry in the freezer. So for those of you who are keen little pastry cooks at home, 
There's your little. That's what you've been looking for. All right. You need to get rid of the booze in order to make your ice cream properly. Gee whiz, well, geez, we've covered some ground. We're talking about beef burgundy. You can go for a high-end pinot to put in that, or a, or a cheaper merlot. And Ed reckons you can probably get away with both. We've learned about azeotropes when we sort of burn off the alcohol, and you get an equal mix with water. I'm so glad you made notes. Oh, You're I'm, I'm writing this with your down. Memory, Pete. Oh my god, thanks, Ed. <laughs> Cheers, mate. We've just heard from Ed and we love him, but he's encouraging us to go to the bottle shop and, and pick out a wine. But oh, let's dive a little deeper. I'm with Paul Jones, who is an architect and also a wine importer. Now, Paul's been around for many, many years, about two or three hundred, isn't it, Paul? Designing homes and wine well, cellars. Jesus, thanks for the compliment, Pete. <laughs> you've designed many home wine cellars and we're going to touch on that, but you've brought in a very special guest to, to wise us up on the ins and outs of wine. Yeah, look, I'm lucky enough to also have designed and built a wine bar in the eastern suburbs of Sydney called Bebo Wine Bar. So whilst I love architecture, I also do have a bit of a passion for wine. So seeing that you wanted to talk about wine cellars, I thought I'd just go one up on you, mate. (laughs) And I brought in Luella Matthews, who is my head sommelier at Bebo. Look, I'll let you handle her because when it comes to matters of wine, you won't get a word in edgewise. Is that right? So we're covering design and wine. Now, how do you become a sommelier? How do you... Oh, you drink a lot of wine to start off with. <laughs> Maybe Paul, you should have been a Pete, it's all about practice. You've got to remember, Luella, I, I'm an ignoramus when it comes to wine. I've got a lot of friends that try and impress me with all these different wine terms. What do I need to know to sound as if I know about wine? What is, I want to be a wine snob. Where do I start? <laughs> Firstly, I would probably start with your wine tools. So what do you actually use to open wine, to drink wine, to decant wine. Mm. So if you're having a dinner party, say, I would make sure you have some really nice glassware. If you really want to go to an advanced level, even different glassware for different grape varietals, you can Google it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's where I would begin. And then, of course, you know, we have our reds and whites, and we spoke to Ed about beef burgundy and and the reds that would go with that. Let's start there. What would you recommend for a sort of good meaty dish, and how do you decide? I really love with big meaty, especially rich dishes, um, Cabernet Sauvignon. I have a real love for Australian Cabernet Sauvignon, and I really feel like it's fallen off the radar especially Australian, because it's you can't really find it anywhere else in the world. It has different flavour components that you really don't find anywhere else. Ed was trying to teach me in his sort of way about sort of tannins and stuff. Where do I start in, in appreciating wine? Tannins is everybody loves talking about tannins. I feel like that's the first step. If you really want to understand, imagine uh, you make an English breakfast tea and you leave the tea bag in for too long and then you drink that tea and it's very drying and grippy. That is what tannins are. That's the, probably the easiest way to look at it. So that's mm. a nice little um, tip if you kind of want to understand. And then I would probably drink a Shiraz and a Cabernet together. And then you'll see that Cabernet has more of those drying tannins than Shiraz does. Is wine seasonal? Yes, it's very seasonal. Even like when I do my wine list, so I'm really excited. It's autumn and it's Pinot Noir season in Double Bay. So they're kind of lighter reds. And then when you move into winter, you go into the heavier reds as well. What are some of the the characteristics, the parameters I might describe the wine to sound intelligent? I definitely would talk about 
the ripeness of the fruit. So that's a really common term used with sommeliers and it really um, kind of differentiates some wine regions from others. So very simply, if it's from a warm or a hot climate, the fruit is going to be sweeter or riper or jammy, if you want to get really sophisticated. Mm, Whereas if it's from a cooler climate, say Rhone Valley, you're looking at like tartar fruit. So think like when you eat a raspberry really fresh, you get that really kind of tart kind of fruit. I want to design a basic home wine collection. What should I have in it? Definitely start Kunawara Cabernet, Margaret River Cabernet and Yarra Valley Cabernet are my three staples. I also am really intrigued. I don't think people age enough Australian Pinot Noir. You know, basics overseas, definitely Burgundy and Bordeaux. And of course, if you're looking especially to resell your cellar, Barossa Shiraz always sells well. Luella, just describe Aging. Why is aging important? When the wine first goes to bottle, it's very fresh. Wine needs to be settled. It allows for all those things to kind of settle out. So, you know, oak, acidity. Sorry, I'm probably getting too technical. But all of those things are kind of like tightly wound up like a little ball. And then aging, I see that ball kind of just coming apart and opening into a sphere of flavours. And But in saying that, it makes me really sad when I see big sellers that are untouched. Oh, <laughs> Call you back, buddy, just in the middle of a podcast. Hey, turn it off and put it on silent. Getting schooled by Paul how to use the phone, I'm worried no, for no. you. <laughs> what type of home wine collection, a good variety of reds and whites, would you recommend to yes. start with? First white, definitely Riesling. Riesling is king. It has really high acidity, which makes wine age for a very long time. So whether it's from Clare Valley... Um, Alsace from Germany, that's my hot tip, and definitely Chardonnay as well. So Chardonnay from Burgundy, from Tasmania, from Yarra Valley. My only tip with Chardonnay is don't leave it too long. Usually the 10-year mark is Mm. a great time to start drinking it. Reds, Pinot Noir, Burgundy again. I always think Tasmanian Pinot Noir, Central Otago Pinot Noir is fantastic. Shiraz, Barossa Shiraz, and also my love for um, Australian Cabernet. So Coonawarra, Margaret River. Really lovely classic um, Australian claret styles age really well. And and Pete, you know, if you just wanted to have a bit of interest to bring out a bottle every now and then, you can always have a Nebbiolo or Sangiovese, which are magnificent uh, Italian varieties, beautiful flavours, and there are some great examples in Australia now. Mm. So just just something for a bit of difference like that, or Barbaresco, just makes a little bit of variety in your cellar. But definitely the staples that Luella's talked about give you a, a strong base to work from. And the other thing I would say is make sure that you keep an eye on them. Um, and Luella mentioned two very pertinent points. One is letting a wine settle. Even driving from the bottle shop home, the wine gets vibrated and it, it, it's really not doing it justice to open it that night. If you can let it settle for one or two days before you open it, it does make a difference. If it comes from interstate on the truck or the train, let it settle for two or three or four weeks and it will definitely be better. You talked about ageing and how do we age in wine? What's the process? I mean, we just put it in the, in the cellar and leave it? What We keep an eye on it? What does the ageing so process really do? So really important with ageing is, specifically if they have a cork, definitely lay it flat down so the wine is in contact with the cork so then the cork doesn't shrink because if the cork shrinks, then um, oxygen will get into your wine. Wine cellaring 101, 
lay it horizontal. It's really important. Um, even with screw cap as well. Second point is keep it in the coolest, dampest part of your house. Um, I personally live in Surrey Hills in a two-bedroom apartment, so I don't have a cellar. But I have a very damp bathroom and I actually put it under my sink in my bathroom. Horizontally. Horizontally. Okay, that's a beautiful little introduction into designing our home wine cellars, Paul. I mean, you've done dozens and dozens and dozens. Designing a home wine cellar, by definition, I mean, cellar means it's close to the ground. What are some of the tips you would spell if you were designing your own home wine cellar or planning to? I must say, Luella, you know, I don't know how you fit 4,000 bottles under the sink <laughs> in, 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 in your bathroom, but... Uh, You're very good at that. (laughs) Now, in terms of spots in the house, places for the cellar, that it has to be cool. Anything less than 18 degrees, 16 degrees is better. The biggest problem you have with keeping wine that's not air co- in, a, in a room that's not air-conditioned is the variation in temperature. So the critical factor for keeping wine, if you're going to keep it for any more than two or three seasons is the variation in wine temperature. The wine temperature shouldn't change more than four degrees. As soon as it does that, it means that the cork expands and shrinks and uh, moves up and down inside the neck of the bottle and the wine changes its texture and character. In fact, it actually ages. If you leave it between summer and winter and it's sitting under the stairs, it'll probably age five or six years in the one change of season. So if the maximum or the best drinking for that particular wine was eight years and you opened it in three years' time, it's gone. Let's say you're going to be pretty serious about your wine cellar. I would suggest that unless it's in the bottom of a basement with stone walls and the temperature variation is probably between 14 degrees in winter and 16 or 17 in summer, then you're pretty much okay. That's optimum. That's perfect. Yeah. If you can't, then find a space, spend the money and put in a simple air conditioning system. A simple air conditioning system will get will lower the temperature to 18 degrees comfortably and sit there. It doesn't have to be on all the time. So long as the temperature stays between 18 and 20 degrees, you will have a good wine cellar. Can I ask, Paul, you talk about planning uh, if you don't have a basement. I mean, optimally, that's, that's where you'd put it underneath the house, close to the earth. But if that's not an option, am I right in assuming that you'd try and plan it on the southern side of war or southern side of the house away from the sun? Definitely, that's a very smart point. On the southern side, it doesn't get direct sunlight at all. It's obviously going to be the coolest part of a section of the house. And uh, if you can find the right sort of space there, that's a good start. Be a little bit careful with dampness because that might set off mould and if it's cork... If it's a cork seal, then uh, the mould can get into the cork and taint the wine. How important is it to have a, a racking system? Well, I said you store them horizontally, not vertically. Can you just put bottles on top of each other? Is that okay? Oh, absolutely you can. So long as the wine is still, it settles. If it's in a rack, then it's very easy to see. The air circulates around the wine, which helps with temperature control. If, on the other hand, the wine's in a cardboard box, which is one of my guilty (laughs) points, as I buy that much wine, it just gets thrown in the cellar in a box. And then, of course, the boxes, uh, the cardboard cases build up and the bottom ones collapse. And then you've got an overflow of wine bottles on the floor. Basically, racking is good to separate your wine, make it easy to see and allow you to make a good choice. Just with the wines that we get from Paul's cellar, the biggest difference is that 
in his cellar, he puts the wine there and he literally hasn't moved that bottle in 20 years. So it's really important. I don't care how many friends you bring over to show off your wine. You shouldn't touch the bottles. Like if you don't touch them, they have a really long lengthy process if you want to keep it for a long time you've got to buy quantity so that you don't touch it and you don't move it Mm. and that's why keeping wine and i come back to luella's beautiful words settle let wine settle you know even when she brings a an old wine from the cellar at bebo she cradles it in her arms as if it's a baby (laughs) in other words not to you know unsettle it before Mm. she decants it and pours it so as you go back to your racking system when the wine's sitting in a rack it's allowed to settle and stay there can i ask each of you your top three points of of perhaps choosing wine and storing wine luella what about choosing wines uh choosing wine so i think i have a similar problem to everybody else where I choose to cellar the wine but I actually end up drinking it so if you are at a cellar door and you do really enjoy the wine I would suggest getting a case of their top tier wine to age for 10 to 20 years and then getting their lower tier wine which is not necessarily a worse wine it's just ready for drinking now so I tend to get 24 bottles of that to keep me underway until the 10-year mark when I can drink the really good stuff. And even if you don't have a wine cellar like Luella, <laughs> she, she finds somewhere in the house yes. somewhere cool and you use your bathroom. So I love the, it. The other hot tip is definitely find the coolest, dampest place in your house and store it horizontally. Mm. And Paul, what yeah. about uh, design well, I think one the other, The first thing you've got to establish is, is how do you want to drink your wine? Do you want to keep it or do you just want to drink it? Wine does improve with age. So if you find a wine you like, Buy a dozen, put six down that you're not going to touch and drink the other six every year. So have one of those a year and see how it's going. And that way you'll know whether it's being cellared properly, whether it's going to be at its peak or when it might be at its peak. And that gives you a six-year range with that particular wine. And if on year three it's really looking good, go out and buy some more. But don't do what I do, and that is leave it there for too long, and then you go to drink it and it's gone. And that's the I'm most, working one of the most, very hard to make sure that doesn't happen. Heartbreaking. It's a very disappointing thing to, to find a beautiful wine and that you say, no, look, it's just one more year. It might be better next year. And mm. then you open it and you wish you had drunk it two years ago. That was architect Paul Jones and Bebo Wine Bar head sommelier Luella Matthews. I'll tell you what I'll get out of that. If you go to the bottle buying wine, get it the day before and let it sit before you open it. That was a great tip. Next week on Better Ideas, Joanna Griggs talks about another of her passions, sustainable living, and about growing your own veggies. And I had about 50 million zucchinis. And I mean, we had zucchini slice, zucchini bread, zucchini. <laughs> and then Michelin star chef Bruno Le Beau, hope I got that right, gives us his tips on plant-based cooking. To impress somebody with a, a few leeks is far more difficult than impress somebody with a steak. And... Uh, <laughs> So you need to put, basically, you need to put much more work in it. Now, this Friday night on Better Homes and Gardens, Joanna and I are travelling to, well, we're travelling sky high to a penthouse in Brisbane. Now, this one has got a swimming pool, mechanical tables, the biggest television set I think I've ever seen. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, why not tell your mates, subscribe or even leave us a comment. Let us know of your better ideas. And if you use the Acast app, you can watch along as well as listen. 
Better Ideas is a Seven West Media podcast. Producer Loretta Farrell, executive producer Nikki Hamilton, and I'm your host, Pete Calhoun. Join me each week with expert tips and advice to make your home, well, better. <laughs>